All right. Well, good morning, Docs Church. Guys, uh, it is great to see you. Go ahead and uh, grab a seat. If, you are, um, if you're new, I want to welcome you again to the Doxa family. My name is Rob. I'm, I'm one of the pastors. It's honestly just a, an honor to, to have you all here today. But guys, um, here, here's where we're at this morning. All right. After today, we have three more weeks um, as we wrap up our study through the gospel according to Mark. And we're in chapter 14 today. So if you want to grab your Bible and, and find your way there, that'd be great. But guys, what we've been doing on this journey, just to catch us up to speed, is we're over the last several months, we've really just been kind of looking at this great historical text called Mark, which really just kind of gives us a, a picture of a portion of human history that has changed the world like no other. All right, that you can look at it from a biblical standpoint, but even from a non-biblical secular standpoint, we can kind of look at this period of time throughout the history of the world, and everybody will agree that this period of history has changed everything. And we talk about history a lot because we know that this is a book that God wrote, but it's not just a religious book, but this is actually based in history. And as, as studies keep coming up, it goes to validate the claims and the, the names and the places of the Bible as, as actually verifiably true. And so we, we talk a lot about history because this is what the Bible is, is pointing us to. But when we think about history, okay, um, let me say this. History is, is something that can be studied from a variety of angles. You know, for, for example, some people will investigate history from the perspective of a particularly important person who has lived throughout the history of the world. They will look at the, what they've done and the legacy they've left after they've died. Others will, will study history by, by looking at significant events that have occurred and kind of shaped humanity in the course of the world, looking at the impact that they left. Some will actually look at ideas and, and philosophies and cultures and the transition of those ideas and those philosophies and those cultures into a new time in place. And they will study history in that way. Christians will look at history and they will break it down into covenants and, or dispensations, which are really just periods of time or, or promises that God has made in fulfillment of those promises. And that's how Christians will tend to look at it. And all those ways, guys, are in fact actual ways to study history. But I remember learning um, another way to look at and understand human history, which relates to Mark chapter 14 today. And it's this is that we can actually put all of human history together by looking at it through the theme of meals. Okay? Meals. And, and I want to talk about this and explain this because I'm getting a lot of like weird looks, but this could be confusing, but a little strange. But I want to show you what I'm talking about by taking a, a quick flyover of the Bible. All right, looking at five different significant meals in human history that can really serve to explain human history and really our relationship with God. And the first meal is occurring in Genesis chapter 3. This is the first meal that we see, and we've studied Genesis a lot, and we've talked about it a lot, but what we find in the book of Genesis in chapter 1 is that God is there before everything, and God creates. He creates all things, things that we see, things that we don't see. Then he creates humanity in his image. He creates a male and female with equal dignity, value, and worth. And as he created humanity, he didn't just create kind of like angels that were to float around in the clouds eating grapes, but he actually gave humanity and us something to do. And he said, hey, I'm going to give you all of creation, and you are to steward this. And so this is the beginning in the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis. And as God did this, 
All right, what he did is he told us, hey, you can eat from anything. You can eat anything you want with one exception. And if you know your Bible, we, you know that humanity was not permitted to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But again, you know the story that the first of humanity, which is Adam and Eve, they, they sinned against God. They did the one thing that they were not permitted to do, and they ate the forbidden food. And this is, in fact, the first sin. And it was through this tragic decision where humanity decided to eat in friendship with Satan and not friendship with God, and sin came into the human experience. It separated us from God. It separated us from each other. Death came into the equation, and everything just got jacked up. And guys, I, I, I want to say this. Like some, I don't know if you're newer to church or not, but when we talk about sin, some people are like, it's, I don't like talking about sin. It's weird. It makes me feel uncomfortable. But I, I want you to know that it's really helpful to talk about sin because sin explains why there's tears in your eyes. Sin explains why we suffer, why there's brokenness in our families, why there's brokenness in relationships, why just bad things happen in general, that sin is the root cause of all of that. But here is what I love. Okay, I, I love this. All right, God the Father could have looked at us and said, okay, well, you don't want to listen to me, you don't want to obey me, you don't want to, you want to do your own thing, that's, that's totally fine. Here's the consequences Live with it, and I'm done with you. He could have done that. And some of you, you grew up with fathers like this. You disappointed him, you disobeyed him, he called you something, and then left. But I need you to understand that God is different. That God, in perfect love, looked at humanity and said, yeah, you messed up. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you so that the sin that you brought into your life won't kill you, and keep you from me forever. And in that moment, God promises to send Jesus, who is God become a man, who would reconcile humanity back to God. This was the first promise after that first meal. And as history continued to unfold, all right, God raises up a man named Abraham. So this is Genesis chapter 12. This is a guy, Abraham, just walking through life. He didn't care about God. He wasn't seeking after God. He wasn't loving God. But in the midst of this, God was seeking after him and loving him. And he shows up to Abraham, and he says, hey, I am God, you're not. I love you, I know you don't love me, but I want to be your God, and through you, I want to bless you, and I want to make you a great family that will become my people. And this is, in fact, the Jewish people. And God says that through these people will come Jesus Christ to deal with this sin problem once and for all that humanity has. And the rest of Genesis, if you know your Bible, is really just the story of this one family. And as you get to the end of Genesis, all right, a, fa a famine hits the land. These people are forced to leave. They end up in Egypt where they can find food. And this brings us to the book of Exodus. And if you're thinking, are you really going to walk through every single book of the Bible? Maybe. Okay, so just about, no. But this brings us to Exodus, where over the course of, of many years, these few people in this family of the Jews becomes a nation of millions of people. And for a while, these people are, are doing really well, as history records. But then, all of a sudden, a man comes onto the scene, uh, just a really terrible king of Egypt named Pharaoh. And Pharaoh comes into power in Egypt, and he hates these people. He hates these people because they worship God instead of him as God. 
And even more, he's kind of like a megalomaniac, and so he's seeing all these Jewish people, and he's realizing there's so many of them, and he gets scared because there's too many of them. And so what he decides to do is create a bunch of slaves out of them. He treats them really poorly, and many even die. But in the midst of this, all right, God raises up another man named Moses, and he, he tells him, hey, I've seen the distress of my people. I've heard their cries. This is Exodus chapter 2. And God tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him, hey, there's a God, and you're not him. And you have his people, and you need to let his people go, or stuff's going to get real. All right, that's the Rob Warren translation of Exodus, okay? But Moses goes, he tells this to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, obviously, he doesn't listen, and so God sends a series of plagues, a series of judgments on the people, Pharaoh again hardens his heart. He doesn't listen, and so God shows up and says, hey, you've messed up, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send a final plague. And if you do not repent, if you do not acknowledge me as the one true God, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to send death through the nation of Egypt, and every firstborn male in every household will die, with one exception. God says that those who have a household who in faith get a lamb without blemish and slaughter it and take its blood and put it on the doorpost of their home, God says those families will be spared and death will literally pass over them. And this leads us to the second meal, which is the Passover meal. And so what God says, he said basically, I want all the people in this land who trust in me and are waiting for Jesus as the Savior to start what is titled the Passover meal. And what we see throughout the history of Exodus is that this all happened just as God said, that God's people were spared from death and set free from slavery in Egypt, that death came to all of the homes of those who did not listen to and have faith in God. And at this point, God's people, they're set free, they left Egypt, and every year for some 1,400 years, God's people would celebrate Passover with a meal. And so the first meal was Adam and Eve eating in sin. The second meal was the Passover eaten in faith. And then a few thousand years later, as God's people awaited the coming Savior, God steps in at the perfect time as the man Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was in about 33 years old, towards the end of his earthly ministry, the time comes to celebrate Passover. And Jesus grabs his disciples. He has this meal, as we're gonna see today in Mark, And Jesus is sitting there at this table with his disciples, the Son of God, also the Lamb of God. And he sat down with this meal to remember the judgment of God in Egypt, the shedding of blood for sin and the deliverance of of his people from slavery. But during this meal, Jesus does something so significant. He flips the script of what was normally said for some 1,400 years, and he says, hey, this bread... And this wine that we're drinking, it's actually all about me. And as he does this, this is the third meal, which is the Last Supper. All right? And he's telling his disciples, he said, all those Passover meals for the last 1,400 years, they're about me. And he says that he is the one that's going to deal with sin. He's like, it's going to be my body that is broken. It's not just the bread. It's going to be my blood that is spilled. I am the way. And as recorded history reveals... Jesus was, in fact, put to death. He was broken. His blood was shed in our place for our sins. And Jesus did, in fact, die. But three days later, he rose from death. 
He appeared for some 40 days to make sure everyone knew that he was alive and that he had conquered Satan, sin, death, and hell, and then he ascended back into heaven. And it was at that point that the early church, they started to gather, and they started taking part in the fourth meal, which is the meal of communion. And the reason why that they started taking part in communion is because Jesus at the Last Supper said, hey, I want you to keep doing this. Continually do this. Even after I'm gone, I want you to remember me and worship me as you do this. And guys, this is why we take communion. Right? It's not snack time. Right? It's, it's literally what Jesus said. It says, he said, take it and keep taking it. And as you do it, remember me. Celebrate me. Worship me. And we're going to continue to do this until Jesus comes back and we see him face to face. And it's then that we will partake in the fifth meal which is the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this is what we see in Revelation 19. This is the meal that culminates human history as we know it, where Jesus will establish the new heavens and the new earth, and the effects of sin that were brought in by that first meal will all be eradicated from all of creation. And those people who ate in faith of the second, third, and fourth meal will join together around the table with King Jesus, and we will celebrate by taking of this fifth meal with joy with him forever. And this is a day that we look forward to, Christian, amen? This is the ultimate day where Jesus will come and he will wipe away that last tear from our eyes and we will be with him in perfection in the new heavens and the new earth. And so five meals that explain human history, which is ultimately all about Jesus and all about his gospel. And Docs, I want you to understand, okay, when we talk about God, we don't have a God who is part of history. We have a God who is over history and who is driving history and directing history, and that is good because from the very beginning, he's in complete control and he's good and has a great plan to love us, to serve us, to help us, and to lead us. And so this is all a lengthy introduction for you to get to Mark chapter 14, where we're looking at the events leading up to this third meal. We're looking at the Last Supper today. And what we're gonna see is that before we get to the table for this Last Supper, guys, we begin with an evil plot and a faithful woman. All right, so let's go. Chapter 14, verse one. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay, so two days before the Passover, where people were going to gather to celebrate the second meal, beginning the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they were commemorating kind of their deliverance from Egypt by God. And as this happens, Mark kind of just zooms in on the religious leaders here that are plotting to kill Jesus. All right, that their murderous resolve was just unified when he healed that man's withered hand on the Sabbath in chapter 3, if you remember back to that. And then it intensified as he cleansed the temple in chapter 11. And then as Jesus told the parable of the wicked vineyard keepers in chapter 12, they wanted to arrest him right then and there, but they were afraid of the crowds. And so the religious leaders, they're just done with Jesus. They're like, he is blowing up everything. He's claiming that he's God. We need to get rid of him. We ultimately need to kill him. But they didn't want to cause an uproar with the people. And they were scheming, how do we do this? And if you look down to verses 10 and 11, they find their answer. Jesus' friend, Judas. 
It's one of Jesus' friends. I mean, we call him a disciple. But this is just Jesus' friend, and he's ready to betray him for some money. And so as this plot and this scheming is going down, Jesus finds himself in this town of Bethany that's about two miles right outside of the city. And here's what Mark records, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And I want you to underline this next part in your Bible. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Jesus is in the home of a man named Simon the leper. All right, and the fact that, that Mark identifies this man like this suggests that he was just an outsider in society. And this has kind of been Mark's thing. He's talking a lot about outsiders around Jesus. So, so this guy is, is not significant in the eyes of culture. He's not significant in the religious leaders but he's significant and important to Jesus. And, and I just want to say, guys, that there are some of you probably that you walk into this building and you feel like that. You feel like you're not significant in the life in the eyes of anybody around you, that they don't value you, they don't see you. I want you to know that might be true of how people think about you and that might be true of how you think about yourself, but that's not how true God thinks about you. That he has created you. You have dignity, you have value, you have worth. You're in his image and he loves you. And everybody might not think anything of you, but he does. And let that encourage you. Let that truth speak over you today, that you belong. There is room for you in the family of God. There is room for you in the family of Doxa because you're enough because of Jesus. But this guy presumably was a former leper because if he still had leprosy, he wouldn't have been able to gather and and celebrate like this in this social event. But So what is likely happening here is that Simon is a man that was healed by Jesus. And this is now like a celebration, like a thank you event gathering that Simon is throwing at his house. And Mark says that he's there with Jesus, his disciples are there, and if you look back, there's also this woman who came to Jesus. And and this woman is not identified by Mark, but if we look at John's account of this occasion in John chapter 12, we're told that this is Mary. You guys remember Mary? Mary is the the sister of of Martha and Lazarus, uh, who Jesus raised from the dead. This is the same woman that Jesus previously was at her house, and he said that Mary chose the one necessary thing, right? She sat at the feet of Jesus, and she worshipped him, and she listened to him. And so it's possible that, that Simon is actually the father of all three of these. But they're all hanging out, all right? And, and I imagine, guys, I don't know if you, when you read this book, like, I don't know if you actually like let it be human, you know, like you read this and you're like, okay, they're reclining at the table. And so you just picture like a a picture or robots not talking or doing anything, but they're just hanging out. Like they're just people hanging out at this table. And I, and I love this. Just imagine like the conversation that's happening after all that has transpired through Mark, right? They're hanging out at this table. They're like, 
man, we've seen some crazy stuff, right? They're talking about what Jesus said about the temple. They're looking at Lazarus and they're like, bro, what was it like being dead, right? What was it like coming back? Where did you go, right? Like, you should write a book. You'll make millions, like all this stuff, right? But they're just talking. Jesus is just hanging out. It says he's reclining at the table. And as he's doing this, Mary comes up and everyone at this party was about to witness something that they will never forget. Because Mary comes up with this bottle of perfume that Mark tells us was worth a, over a 300 denarii, which that doesn't mean anything to us, and, but in those days, um, a day's worth of wage was one denarius, and so this is about a year's worth of wages for this bottle of perfume, all right? So we're talking in this time the equivalent of like twenty-five, thirty-five thousand dollars and she comes with it, and all of a sudden she just breaks it open. Okay, now we gotta understand, like Mary, because she was a woman in those days, she wasn't allowed to have an occupation that would provide her with an income that could pay for this, so this is probably like an heirloom that's been passed down to her, very, very expensive, and she just comes and she snaps the neck and pours it on Jesus' head. And if we look at John's account of this moment, John adds that not only did she pour it on his head, but she also poured it on his feet, and then she used her hair to wash and to dry off his feet. Do you remember this in the Gospel of John? And as she does this, guys, I need you to understand, like, this was wildly radical. It was countercultural. Because in these times, all right, a woman would normally never approach a man in a public setting like this except to serve him food. But I love this about Mary. I love Mary. I want to be like Mary, okay? I really want to be like Mary, but I'm too much like her sister, and I'm running around and getting busy and complaining. But Mary is awesome. Mary didn't care about cultural conventions. She didn't care about that. Jesus was her Lord. Jesus was her master. She loved him. She wanted everyone to know how valuable he was. And so she just went public. She just blew past every barrier that people said that she couldn't and she shouldn't. And as people looked at Mary, there was no doubt. No one would deny her loyalty for Jesus. They knew that Mary loved Jesus. They could see it in the way that she spoke. They could see it by her actions. Everybody who looked at Mary was like, there's a woman that loves Jesus. And let me just pause, because I I was thinking about this this week. And I'll just ask you this question, guys. Can that same thing be said of you and me? Like, are we like Mary in this moment? Just unashamed of Jesus. Willing to push through, like, cultural barriers and conventions in order to worship Jesus and make him known. Like, when people would see you, would they be like, yep, that's a man that loves God. He really loves Jesus. Is that true of you? Is that true of of us? I'm going to put myself in there. Maybe you're in a place where you feel like you need to obey Jesus and you're just not because you're afraid of what other people might think. Like maybe you you see like this idea of just getting baptized. You've heard us like talk about it and you're thinking about, I mean, I feel like I should obey Jesus, but I know if I do that, things might get weird with my family, my friends, they find out. Maybe you feel led to do something or to speak to someone, or to stand up for something. But you know, like if I do that, 
people are going to think differently of me. Like they're going to label me as weird, a weird Christian. Like it'll just get weird. There's some, there's some of you college students. I know that you, you're talking about and feeling God prompting you to live and to move overseas, to be a missionary, to share the gospel with people who have never heard of Jesus. And you feel this. But then the thought creeps in, and maybe even the real voice of your parents come in and be like, I just dropped $200,000 on college for the last 10 years. No way. That's stupid, right? Are we willing to follow Jesus in that way? Because I love Mary as she pushed through all that because she saw Jesus as worthy. We sing that song, you're worthy. Sometimes, I don't know if you get like this, but I sing songs, and as it's coming out of my mouth, I'm like, do I really believe this? Am I actually living like this? Doc said, it's one of my prayers that we would be a church filled with Marys. Filled with Marys. Just 100% about Jesus and willing to live for him and to speak for him and to go for him because he is God and he is, in fact, worthy. Let's be people that would just do anything for Jesus and his glory. Amen? Guys, as Mary does this, what we see is a really sad response from the disciples. Right? You you notice this? Mary comes and does this thing, and then all of a sudden, the disciples get mad, and they just go after her. And they call her act of worship just a waste. All right? They say that it should have been sold and given to the poor people, and they just start at her. And they're scolding her. And as they do this, Mark presents us with just like a glaring contrast between the way Mary valued Jesus and the way the disciples valued money. And this same value difference is what frames kind of the larger contrast between the story of the anointing of Jesus by Mary and the story of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. In fact, in the parallel account in John chapter 12, John showed us that it's actually Judas who started the commotion, who started complaining. Listen to what he says in John 12, verse 6. John says that Judas said all this stuff about the poor, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used what was given to help himself. And so in this moment, when we think about Judas and his betrayal of Jesus, I need you to understand that he did this because of a love for money. He just had this other love in his life that just caused him to betray Jesus. And we see this in verses 10 and 11, that he goes to the religious leaders. They say, we'll give you some money. He's like, I'm good. I'll figure out a way to get Jesus in your hands. And so, guys, I'll ask you this. We're not that different from Judas. What is it in your life right now that might have your eye, that might have your heart, that would tempt you to dishonor or to walk away from or to betray Jesus like Judas? Or I'll ask you like this. What's in your life right now that's trying to push Jesus off the throne of your heart? And if you would say, like, man, honestly, nothing. Like, I love Jesus. I love being in here singing songs. I want you to understand I love you enough to say you have a very inadequate view of yourself. We all have stuff in our lives. And it might not be rising to the surface right now, dominating our life, but it's sitting there, lurking at the door. What is it in your life that you are prone to look to, that you're prone to go after, Maybe it's money like Judas, that you think about money all the time. You make decisions based on the padding in your bank account that you have rather than the voice of God in your life. Maybe it's your image, 
and the way that you want other people to see you, that you're obsessed with how you look and looking good in front of other people, and this dominates your life, and it pulls you away from Jesus, it pulls you away from ministry. Maybe it's relationships and sex, good things that God has given us that has taken a root in your life and literally sat on the throne where now everything about your life is dominated and you're getting drugged around on a leash by that. Where are you at? Where might you be tempted to dishonor or to walk away from or betray Jesus? Because I'd encourage you this week to think about that, to consider that. And, and we don't like to do this. Right? We'd rather come in here and be like, sing the songs and then leave. Because we know that if we actually do this work of Psalm 139, search me, O God, show me my, any grievous way in me, that we're going to be confronted with the ugliness of our sin and probably have to change. And we don't want to do that. But let me just encourage you guys to do this work and then identify that thing. And don't feel condemnation, but pray and ask God by his power to help you keep it in the right spot, beneath Jesus, so that you can live like Mary and not like Judas. But back to the account, all right? The disciples, they start going after Mary. And I love what Jesus does in this moment, that Jesus comes to Mary's defense. And he says, if you look back in verse 6, leave her alone. He says, why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Okay, so in this moment, the disciples, I think they think, they thought they knew the mind of Jesus, but they were mistaken because Jesus comes down hard on them. I imagine, I mean, this is getting towards the end. Jesus is like, you guys are ridiculous. How many times do I have to keep telling you to stop saying stupid stuff? But he's there, and he comes down hard on them. And he, as he does this, okay, he's not diminishing helping poor people. Because if you know the words of Jesus throughout the Gospels, he persistently taught that service and generosity to the poor was a good thing, a godly thing. So that's not the issue. He's not diminishing that. But the issue here is between the words always and not always, if you look back. That the poor were always going to be there, but Jesus was not always going to be there. And so the opportunity to show him this kind of love and affection as God would soon be gone because he's ultimately going to the cross in just a few days he'll be dead. And so Jesus defends her and he says, she's done a beautiful thing, okay? And, and we could look at that and just say, wow, it's beautiful, that's really great. I want to show you why I think that there's several reasons why Jesus sees this as beautiful. And the first reason is this, is because I think that Jesus was aware of her motive. He saw her heart. All right, that if you remember back to the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, he says that you can have the greatest of gifts, he says, you can sacrifice all, but if you don't have love, what does he say? You're nothing. It means nothing. That love makes our gifts pleasing to God. And so here, it's, it's not because this woman had this elaborate, expensive gift that she gave to Jesus, and Jesus was like, wow, I'm really impressed by your generosity. It, it's not that at all. We see the outside of people. Jesus sees in. He sees our heart, and in this moment, he saw the heart of Mary, and he saw that it was motivated by love, genuine love for Jesus. As Mary's beautiful gift came from a beautiful heart that actually loved Jesus. But secondarily, I think Jesus saw this as beautiful 
because came from a spontaneous response from the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And, and I just want you to see this, okay? As Mary was bringing this heirloom, this expensive bottle of perfume, she wasn't kind of just rationalizing and thinking like, man, is this practical? Should I be doing this? Like, this is a lot of money. Maybe I can find something cheaper in the drawer. She wasn't thinking about that at all. She was just following the Spirit of God in her life. The theologian John Calvin, as he comments on this passage, he says that Mary was guided by the breath of the Spirit that in sure confidence she should do this duty to Christ. And so it's the Holy Spirit of God who led Mary to do this for reasons that she would only know in eternity, one of which was to provide a universal church example of faith and love. As Jesus says, if you look back in verse 9, that this story would be told throughout generation, and that is actually being fulfilled right now as we remember her. It's the prompting of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And there's stories of people in here that you have gone places, you have spoken to people, you have given things that from the outside makes no amount of sense, but the Spirit of God prompted you and you were obedient, you followed him, and that's the heart that's beautiful to Jesus. The third reason I think Jesus saw this as beautiful was because of what he said in verse 8. All right, he said that she did what she could, okay? So Mary wasn't a person of means, all right? She didn't have a lot, but she gave Jesus the most that she could. And, and I was thinking about this. I don't really think that Jesus, he would, he would have never said that she did what she could if she had kind of like come and measured out drops and he's like, here's Jesus, here's a drop for your forehead. Let's put your feet together. We'll just do one drop and smear it together. Like she, he wouldn't have said that. Because the truth is, is that complete sacrifice is the only proper response for a life that has been redeemed by God. And Mary lived this way. Take a look at how the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the love of God, the gospel of God, the gifts of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So for Paul and for Mary and what Jesus saw, it wasn't so much about just like writing a check and throw it in a box and then attending faithfully on a Sunday. It was a life that says, Jesus, you are God, I am not. Anything, anytime, anywhere, I'm yours. This was Mary's posture. And may, by the grace of God, this be our posture. But for these reasons, Jesus sees this as beautiful. And guys, this is why we still honor this woman today. And we would do well to follow in the example of Mary. As true followers of Jesus, won't hesitate to worship him with great love and great sacrifice. Mary's legacy is love for Jesus, and that's something that I pray will mark our church. Now, while Mary is worshiping Jesus, Judas is betraying Jesus. The disciples are preparing for a Passover meal. Look at verse 12. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for the, to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? 
where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And guys, and we can read this, and maybe you read this and are tempted to think, well, this is kind of just like some, some filler from Mark to make this like a nice, readable, cohesive story. But I need you to understand that these details are there specifically. And there's something significant for us to learn about the nature of God. See, as Mark shares this with us, he wants us to know that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in complete control. He's in control over the plots and the plans that are against him right now. That he's in control of everything. I want you to look at what he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. It's going to come up here on the screen. This is what Jesus says. He says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Guys, Jesus is in complete control. He is God. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And one of the great fallacies throughout the history of the world is that Jesus is just a good man that lived long ago. But the truth is, and the thing that we say consistently and over and over and over again is that Jesus is not just a good man, but he's the God man. And he shows us this by a number of different ways, through his resurrection, through his proclamation, but here showing us that he was in complete control even in the midst of all these secret plots that were going on around his life. And Jesus says, I will die, but I will decide when and how it happens. And at the perfect time, Jesus would do it, and he would go to the cross, and he would accomplish the amazing goal of reconciling humanity to God. And God, guys, I want you to understand this. It's, it's not just something to like, fill you with the truth of what's happening in this moment of like, wow, that's pretty cool that Jesus like, is in control. But I want you to see this so that it fills you with hope and perspective today. Talks that God is in control and he has a good plan. And I really do pray that this gives you just a sense of peace. Because I don't know if there's anything like, like so often in my life I feel out of control. Anybody with me? Like there's just things that happen. There's certain things that I'm like, okay, my dog poops in the house a lot. I can like, get rid of my dog, okay? I can control that, which I'm working on with my family. But anyway, but there's other things that happen that I'm completely out of control. And it gives me comfort and peace to know that while things are over my head, they're still under his feet. Jesus is king, and God is in complete control. And guys, would you just take hold of this so that in the midst of the turmoil in your life, when the chips are down, that you can look to him and actually understand that he is in complete control, he's a good father, and you can depend on him. And so the disciples are locking down this location. Jesus is emphasizing his complete control over this. They're getting ready for this second meal, the Passover, in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping the bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. All right, so they're about to take part of this meal. 
And Jesus drops the bomb that one of the 12 is going to betray him. Everybody's like, what is going on? Judas is kind of like, how would you know? Right, but he knew he's talking about him. But I want you to understand something about Judas. All right, Judas was lost for the same reason that millions are lost today. Jesus, or Judas does not repent of his sins and believe on Jesus. And I just need you to know, guys, if, if you have not come to Jesus in faith, and laid your sin down and found forgiveness of that sin. You have not been made through, new through faith. And one day, like Judas, what Jesus says in verse 21, you will come to a day where you will wish you were never been born. Because there is only eternal damnation ahead because sin is very real and it separates us from God eternally. And I say that, and it's hard, and this is not the way to grow a church, like be like, speak about something else. But this is the most important thing I could ever say, and I don't know if I'll ever have a chance to say it to you again. You need Jesus. Sin is a very real part of your life. We're all like Judas, because we all sin, and we all betray Jesus. But I beg you to not have the same story as Judas, where you never repent of your sin come to Jesus. And if Judas would have just repented of his sin. Because human history is all about Jesus. Your life is all about Jesus. And this is actually what the third meal is all about here that Jesus goes into. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take. Can you circle that in your Bible? Take. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus gets to this Passover meal, the Last Supper, and a man named Timothy Keller does a great job helping us understand this meal and how what Jesus did was just absolutely crazy. And listen to what Keller says, and I quote. The Passover meal included four points at which the presider of the meal, holding a glass of wine, got up and explained the feast's meaning. There were four cups of wine representing the four promises made by God in Exodus chapter 6. These promises were for the rescue from Egypt, for freedom from slavery, for redemption by God's power, and for renewed relationship with God. When the third cup came, it was the time when the meal was almost complete. At this point, the presider would use words from Deuteronomy 26 to bless the elements by explaining how they were symbolic of Israel's captivity and deliverance. He would show the bread and he would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Now, as Jesus got to this point in the meal, he flips the script that has been written for 1,400 years. He just changes everything that he says. They say, and he says, no, this is actually my body. And he says, this is my blood. And this is Jesus saying that as a result of his death on the cross, a new covenant has been established between God and us. And the basis of the relationship is Jesus' own blood. Because in this Last Supper, Jesus gives us the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus does in fact love you. The bad news is you have sin that's going to keep you from God. But the ultimate good news, it's by the blood of Jesus that we are made clean. 
It is not us going through rituals and meals and religions and feasts and festivals. It is only Jesus. He is the only one. And this is the good news. Because it's not about us, it's about him. And we just come and say, Jesus, I need you. And he grabs us. And he does the thing we can never do on our own, which is to take our sin and bring us to God. This is the gospel. And this is what this Last Supper is all about. Jesus is saying, all of this that has happened, the coming Savior, the, everything pointing to the Savior, I'm he. And it's my body and it's my blood. Come to me. And if you look back when he says, take. Guys, this is the same thing as saying that this is the real thing I need. This is an act of faith. Jesus is saying that we, we need a personal relationship with him. To eat a meal with somebody at this time was to be in relationship with him. And so Jesus, when he says, take this bread, take this wine, this is my body, my blood, take, he's inviting us into a personal relationship with him because he's that, he knows that this is the only way to find forgiveness of sin. Guys, you can sit at the table and have a great big meal sit in front of you and you can starve to death at that table if you don't take it. There's a seat for you at the table and Jesus is there and he's just inviting you to take, to come to him. Will you do it? If you haven't come to Jesus, like you need Jesus. And we love you enough to tell you that because you need Jesus for your joy. Jesus is inviting you to take. And in Luke's occasion of this, he says, as you take this, do it in remembrance of me. And this is what we're going to do together as a family right now, is we're going to remember Jesus. We're going to celebrate communion. We have four stations. During these last two songs, as this is an opportunity for us to do what Jesus is telling his disciples, ultimately us to do, to remember him, to celebrate him, to worship him. But as we take communion, I want you to know that communion is for sinners, not achievers. You understand that? It's for those who have acknowledged that there is sin in their life and there's nothing that they can do, and they look to Jesus and said, please take it. It's that person who goes and celebrates communion, saying, Jesus, it's your body and your blood that has made me clean. If you're still trying to work out salvation in you by being a good person and trying to fix it on your own and you haven't come to Jesus, I'm just gonna invite you just to stay where you're at. It doesn't make sense for you to celebrate communion with us today, but if this is the day that you come to Jesus, man, just go to him and say, you're God, I'm not. I got sin, you're the answer, please take it. And then get up, take communion, and then sing like you've never sang before. Doc, so this is what we're gonna do. So go, I'm going to pray, I'm going to give you a minute just to get real with your sin. Bring it to Jesus, knowing he's faithful and just. Ask him to take it, thank him for forgiving. Say thank you, Jesus, for the blood, and then celebrate by taking communion and singing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your love, God, that quite honestly doesn't make any amount of sense. I think of Romans 5.8 where it says that, Jesus, while I was still a sinner, you, you came and you died for me. I can't fathom 
you looking at me as the man that I once was with love. But I know that that's true, and God, I just thank you. That even now, as a broken and sinful man that's standing up here on this stage, you still love me, and you're not done with me. And so, Holy Spirit, would you remind every single one of us of your grace? Would you give us just a fresh revelation of the gospel, of your love? Would you help us to just have a very real view of ourselves and our sin that would break our hearts but not crush our spirit because we know we have you, Jesus, and that we would come to you, find forgiveness, and we would have joy and we would celebrate and worship. Jesus, we love you. You're so good. And God, I, I thank you for bringing those people here that are not in Christ, but they're here in Doxa today. You know where every single person is at. God, would you help them to understand your love, help them to understand their sin, help them understand the gospel. And I pray that you would save them today. Give them the courage to step up and to come to you and the humility just to lay it down at your feet and let them sing like never before. We just ask this in Jesus' name.